welcome to the SBCA podcast, Component Connection. Hello, my name is Sean Shields, and today I'll be your host for this SBCA podcast series, looking at how component manufacturers around the country are innovating to take advantage of opportunities in today's market. My guest today is BJ Laus, president of Laus Trusts in Ferndale, Washington. Now, three generations of the Laus family has been in business since 1952, and now they operate two trust plants in the state of Washington. BJ, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Excellent. So to start off, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the family business, how it started, and how structural components became part of your operations? Yeah, uh, my grandfather started um, in the general construction business in the 50s, um, and he built houses in a small town called Linden, Washington, and he ended up growing that business into um, a fairly sizable organization with a with a lumber yard. Um, they had a septic company, uh, development company. They actually did wall panels and roof trusses starting in the late 70s. Um, and then in the early 80s, my dad ended up buying that group of companies with a group of investors, um, which wasn't a great time to be buying a trust plant and wall manufacturing and all that. Interest rates were high, and it was yeah. it was a tough time. Uh, there was and he ended up selling off his shares of all the companies except for the trust plant. And I believe in 1982, uh, we became. Uh, solely a roof truss um, manufacturer at that time. Interesting. Do you have any idea why he decided to sell everything with the roof truss business? Like why was that the, the one part of the business he wanted to keep? You know, I'm not 100% sure on that. I know that the lumber yard was really struggling and I think that his personality just fit better with manufacturing than some of the other, some of the other businesses. And I think he had some, some advice from some people around him, local competitors and things like that uh, to stay to stay in that business. Um, I think it also had probably had something to do with the with the with the building and grounds and um, the ownership my grandfather had in that and the ultimate transition um, of that, you know, years later. But that's somewhat speculation. I should probably ask him. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. You know, when you're writing your memoirs sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's interesting. So your dad makes this decision to st stick with the trust business. And then you obviously grew up in that, right? I mean, you were around the family business. It's whether or not it was spoken about at the dinner table. At some point, you probably got dragged into the trust plant to work there. Is that right? Um. Yeah. I, I did. Um, it, I don't think I had the traditional, you know, every every summer, you know, working and building trusses. Um, I did a lot of other things, you know, outside of trusses, and I, I I wasn't drawn to it the way that I hear some of the people in the industry talk about, you know, being in the trust plant. I when I was in high school, I worked um, at a at a summer camp. And even in college, um, in the summers, I tarred roofs and did a hot tar tear off um, on, on for a roofing company because I could make more money doing that than building trusses. And it really wasn't until, you know, after I graduated um, college that I uh, took a large interest in in what was going on uh, with, with the trust plant. 
what caused that? I mean, you, you finished school, the world's your oyster. What, what brought you into the trust plant then? Uh, well, I really needed a job. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, honestly, I really needed a job. I, uh, I worked for, I had a few internships. I worked for a, um, an international relief and aid organization out of college called World Vision, um, Christian International Relief Organization. And I worked for a, um, a private investment company that did tax managed passive investing uh, for a while. And then I ended up working for uh, getting into the component and building industry, working for Woodenville Lumber, um, oh. which was owned by Lyman Lumber at the time. And they had two Weinman wall panel machines and a large trust plant and turnkey framing operation um, ended up folding during the downturn. And and I worked for them for a while and then they slowed down enough and I got to the point where I really needed a job. And I think it was the fifth time that my dad offered me a job to come work um, in, in the plant. And I, I, I finally, I finally caved in and accepted. So <laughs> time's a charm in this case. Yeah. Yeah. So you start working in the trust plant. Your, your initial motivation is I, I need a job. I need to make some money, but, Obviously, yeah. where you're at now, things changed over time. Was there a a moment or something that you got engaged in that that really drew you in and made you decide, you know what, I really like this. This is this is where I want to be. This is the industry I want to make a career out of. I I really want to invest my whole self in the family business. It, was there a a moment or a, a book you read or an interaction or or something? Yeah, I don't I don't know if it was a specific moment, um, but I do remember, you know, talking to people close to those around me and just realizing that it was was a lot more engaging than what I had realized it to be or thought it was in my head. Um, I started in the summer of 2007. Um, so you can imagine what my first, you know, six or seven years looked like um, <laughs> starting at a time like that. Um, it was it, it it was a very challenging time to be, you know, in the industry for quite a while, and you know, sort of cutting my teeth in the industry while things were were not good um, for a long time, um, and really having to look at, you know, the business and how we did things, and I was really tasked with making some substantial changes uh, within the company. Um, first, on the you know, I started out as sort of working in production and um, as running the crews in the shop. And uh, it was, yeah, it was just a really challenging time. So I think, um, you know, sort of all bets were off and it was, uh, you know, it didn't matter the way that we did things in the past. How are we going to do things in the future to remain viable? Because we did not see the market improving anytime soon. So we had to make some real changes, you know, in, in the business. And that was, was very engaging, very, very difficult, but very engaging. You know, it's interesting. So, I mean, you have developed in your career sort of a reputation for being an industry expert in lean manufacturing. And given what you just said, it sounds a lot like, um, you know, history repeating itself. We talked a lot about, you know, at least my grandparents being uh, people who lived through the Depression and how that experience really defined how they looked at finances and money throughout the rest of their life, regardless of what the economy did you know, through the, out the rest of their life, right? And it sounds like for you, lean manufacturing was just 
um, something that needed to be done because when you got into the business, that's how you were looking at everything, about as frugally, or in this case, as efficiently as possible. Is that, through that experience, like what is it that, um, I guess, drove you to these lean concepts? Like where did you get exposed to them and how did you go through the process of sort of uh, learning about them and then implementing them? Well, I first was introduced to lean concepts in in college. I mean, we I had an operations course uh, with a professor that I really really enjoyed, and uh, and I want to preface this: I am I do not consider myself a lean expert. <laughs> I've learned um, I'm may, maybe enthusiast that might may even be a strong word for it, um, but I, I have learned what I've needed to learn for for the business. But there are a lot of really talented experts out there and I, I do not consider myself um do not consider myself one but um i guess in the trust industry we we gave we were given a grant by the state of washington i guess the local manufacturers here um, and had some lean consultants come in and worked with us for i think three one-week periods this is in 2009 and Everything we implemented failed miserably um, out of those, <laughs> out of those, which was kind of funny. Thinking that I really enjoy lean now, and, and we we have it in you know in place in our business, um, but at the time, uh, I just I really thought it was interesting the way that lean sort of distilled concepts, you know, for efficiency and improvement. And while all of our process improvements were ultimately tossed out the window, um, some of the concepts that were introduced uh, survived within our company, and we ended up pursuing that um, sort of in our own way, you know, in, in the years to come. But that, uh, that, initial, that initial grant was, was, was pretty transformative in the way that I thought about manufacturing. And then I ended up going to a lot of different local seminars and business business meetings and things like that early in my career and and met met some people that 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 taught lean and that did that and we actually just hired this year um, our longtime lean consultant that now works for us um, full-time doing process improvement and he was someone that I met you know, back in 2010 um, going to different local business seminars and things like that so it's been it's come it's come full circle which has been re really fun and exciting over the last year or so. It sounds like it. So you're putting yourself in the lean enthusiast camp, and then you, as you said, you've <laughs> hired your own lean expert then. Is that it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think we got to the point where, you know, I and the size of our business and the scale of what we're trying to do, that I, I can't go out there and run a Kaizen event, you know, on a regular basis anymore or, mm -hmm. you know, in, engineer you know, re-engineer tooling or, you know, work on setup reduction and those kind of things like I used to. And so we just got to the point where we, we needed more expertise and more more manpower around doing that and pushing that right. pushing that agenda forward. And we were approached by um, a guy named Chris Ortiz. And Chris called me up and said, hey, I'm thinking about getting out of this whole consulting thing. And I, I think I'd really like to work for your company. And you know, I thought on the phone, man, this will never work. <laughs> but but I like Chris. I'm gonna go have lunch with him. And I talked to our general manager, Clarence, and I said, Clarence, I'm 
I'm having lunch with Chris and he says, that'll never work. And I went and had lunch with Chris and I, I came back and I said, Clarence, um, I think this is going to work. And he said, I don't think it's going to. And I said, well, I at least need you to have lunch with them. And he said, okay, I'll have lunch with them. And he came back and he said, I think, I think this is going to work. And so we ended up hiring Chris a few weeks later and it's, it's, it's been, we're just getting started with him and, and that, that sort of journey. Uh, but it's been, it's, it's been a lot of fun. So, I mean, your, your early failures aside with lean manufacturing, the lean concepts obviously have over time worked for you. Uh, when you apply that generally to the industry, what do you think it is about component manufacturing that lends itself to some of these lean concepts? I think um, at the core of the trust industry, or what we do in, in manufacturing in general, like what, what we do is not, not overly complicated. We, we cut wood and we you know, in, embed metal plates into that wood to create the shape that we need. Um, I think that, you know, and what we're doing is manufacturing. So lean concepts, you know, try to get us to think about, you know, on, on a very global level, try to get us to think about what's value added and what's non-value added. And I think that by identifying the value added steps, which is, you know, cutting wood and embedding plates and looking at everything else or trying to look at everything else as sort of waste around that transportation, you know, some of it's necessary waste transportation, material handling, you know, recuts, rebuilds, um, the saw, saw breaking down. I mean, all the different waste streams that, that are generated, extra steps, and distilling it into, you know, what we do is value added, um, you know, works for the trust industry. And I think it works for, works for all manufacturing. Um, what I do have to say about lean is you can pick the parts of lean that work for your company, you know, and sort of, you know, let the parts that don't work go. There's a there's a company in our area called Genie. They make lifts. Genie lifts. They're a large organization, and they have the metal that they need to build the lifts um, that day are shipped in that same day or that same morning. And so, if they if their shipment doesn't show up then they're not their entire factory is shut down for that day because they don't have the metal the actual parts they need you know to build their lifts right? in the trust industry we're dealing with a commodity product you know we're not it's not you know specialty cut metal or anything like that and you know most of us couldn't look at our lumber suppliers and say hey you know we're doing 50,000 board feet you know and i need these sticks of lumber and i need them today and the next day and the day after that you know, and that would be a lean concept, like reducing your your inventory, right, to free up cash and increase your turns and all that. Uh, but we have to look at that within our market and say, okay, there, you know, our suppliers are not, you know, to the point where they can do that. We're dealing with a commodity product where our, you know, pricing changes, and so we want to be able to utilize um, our purchasing power, you know, when, when the price is low to buy it or use, you know, hedge the lumber. Um, and those are sort of outside of that sort of lean concept. And I feel like some people look at lean and say, I am going to, um, I'm going to dismiss all of it because this part of it doesn't work for my company. And that's just not, I don't think it's an accurate way to look at it. Um, and we've, we've taken parts of, you know, lean thinking and said, hey, that doesn't work for us now. Um, and that's one example of it. 
So do you think that's part of the reason why, even though as you articulate, um, implementing lean manufacturing concepts is pretty a pretty straightforward process for sort of the straightforward way we manufacture our products, but yet our industry really hasn't uh, embraced at least formally lean concepts across the board. Do you think that's the reason why that most often CM sort of look at the whole picture and say, well, this part doesn't apply to me, therefore I'm not going to do any of it? Or do you think there's something else going on? I mean, I don't, I don't really want to speculate on, you know, why people choose to, you know, embrace a certain concept or, or not. Um, that's, you know, that's up to each individual, each individual company to assess. I would say that, you know, generally, um, and, and this is, ch I think, changing. But generally, you know, our industry and the building industry is is resistant, you know, to change. You know, and I think that, um, you know, done right, if if companies are not resistant to change or, or actively looking to, you know, pursue innovation on, on whatever level that may be, um, I think that creates, you know, opportunities for those companies. And I think that's the building industry in general and, and the component industry is part of that. You know, I think that there's a lot of innovation happening in, in components, you know, and from our industry into the building industry. Um, but generally, you know, there's there's a lot of places that do things that the way they've done them for a long time. And that works for them. And that's great. But I think that, you know, if you look at trying to increase output or your return or create a better price for your customer or a better product or innovate in the industry, you know, utilizing different products, I think that that ends up having a lot of opportunity. And I, I think that there are companies out there that are really investing and pushing toward that. And I think we're going to see a lot of change. You know, we, as as a smaller, not smaller, but as an independent component manufacturer, um, I I need to be able to compete with those who have a lot more financial resources. Um, and you know, my goal has always been to try to be on the forefront of of technology, of innovation, of of just moving the company forward, so that we're big enough to be able to either invest. Or, or have some sort of competitive advantage, you know, over our competitors, where we can we can survive the sort of downturn that we were in, or continue to to take market share and then therefore insulate ourselves from large market changes. And that that's kind of how it's kind of the perspective that I have moving forward, looking at you know lean concepts, looking at um, technology changes, you know, and all that sort of moving forward uh, into the future. That's awesome. I mean, you raise a really good point. Innovation. Uh, I mean, that's a really big uh, keyword buzzword that we use a lot not only in manufacturing here in this country but specifically in our industry and looking at what are the ways that we can innovate to help our customers deal with their pain points labor and and material and that kind of thing with your focus on lean manufacturing I mean you, you've brought some of these these ideas up how does that change how you assess things like getting greater efficiency out of your production line um, how you evaluate things like um, automation equipment and that kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about how your experience with Lean Concepts has sort of influenced how you look at these alternatives in front of you? Yeah, I think, you know, it ends up being uh, not all that exciting stuff when I when I think about it. I mean, it's, um, we utilize a lot of different metrics, you know, and things like that to to judge efficiency. But some of the things that, you know, people might not look at that we look at are, you know, setup time, change over time, uptime, things on equipment like that. 
I think one of the things I like about Lean is that it, it exposes issues, right? If you're running, you know, like we do, like, you know, we cut one trust at a time and deliver that to the tables and we only have, you know, 20 minutes of work in progress between our saws or maybe less than that, our saws and our jigs and your saw goes down, you know, that exposes um, a problem, right? Your problem is your saw is going down and, you know, you, you can say, okay, well, I know my, I think my saw is going to go down. So I'm going to have, you know, several hours or several days worth of, worth of cutting, worth of cut material between my saws and my jigs. And that's the way we used to solve that problem, right? Or solve it, like put a bandaid on that problem of the saws going down was that we would just build more and have a bigger buffer so that we could like, we could catch up. And Lean says, no, don't, don't do that. Um, go to the root cause and figure out how to make it so your saw doesn't go down. So when we look at um, new equipment or we look at our, our current equipment, um, we're working really hard on things like preventative maintenance and uptime and what can we do, what can we do proactively because we're more efficient to make sure that our saws are, are up and running um, all the time. And, you know, if, if a saw goes down for a certain reason, we, we track that and we look at that and we track that over time to make sure that we are doing everything we can um, around that to either engineer that problem out or to mitigate it. Say you have a part that traditionally goes out at 1,200 hours and we're tracking that over time. Well, then we can go through and say at 1,000 hours and replace that part before it goes bad. Um, and things like that. So when we look at new equipment and new technology, we want to make sure that the, the technical support is there, that the turnaround time on, on parts are there, that we're getting, that the piece of equipment is, is robust enough to do the things we want to do with it. And that's, that's maybe a little bit different than just saying, okay, here is, here's the piece of equipment, here is the throughput, and here's, you know, how much labor I can save. There's a, a broader spectrum of, of data points that we look at uh, than just that. Excellent. All right, so crystal ball time. Um, if you look over the next 20 years, hmm. what would you predict will be the biggest challenge that either will or should occur in, in our industry? Well, I think there's, there's going to be a lot of challenges. I don't know if I don't think that our, our company will be recognizable from what it is in, in 20 years. Um, I think that technology is moving, moving really quickly. I believe that in 20 years, most trusts or not all trust production, if, if a trust is built the same way, um, will be done at almost a fully automated um, scale. We're starting to see the beginnings of that right now. And as more companies you know, innovate and evolve toward um, toward automation, and the price comes down. I, I I just don't see I don't see a world where we're running crews that are as big as what we run right now. And I think that there'll be a lot more vertical integration in the industry as well. Um, I look at we're, we're not in a market that is vertically integrated, but you look at you know markets where turnkey framing services you know are provided. Uh, similar to what Jason was talking about a few weeks ago on the podcast. Um, I believe that that's the way that most building will, will be done, you know, through a, through a single entity that's, 
that's integrated, integrated, and I don't, I'm not really very articulated on that, but, um, you know, looking at off-site build and assembling on-site, um, you know, even more fully than what we're considering now, like fully, fully prefabbed panels with electrical and insulation and siding and, and all that. And we see models of that happening, but I just believe as, as, you know, technology gets better and uh, the automated side of that gets better and being able to control that in a manufacturing environment just makes so much more sense, you know, than, than, than site building. Um, in markets where, you know, it's primarily, you know, custom homes that that'll take longer to, to develop, but I believe that you know down the road you'll be able to get a custom product out of a manufacturing facility similar to what you're able to do um, today on site, and that that would be where I, I see things going. Um, the only major thing I could see holding that back is is sort of you know regulation and, and codes and things like that, or efforts to efforts on whatever level to to curb that. But that's that's the direction that's the direction I think the industry is moving. And do you think component manufacturers are in a good position to sort of monopolize that? Well, maybe not monopolize, but take <laughs> advantage of that shift. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say monopolize, but I think that component manufacturers are in, are in a great position. I mean, we have, you know, we're we're in a crane delivery market, so we already have cranes. Um, we used to do wall panels, but because of our our market now, we don't do that anymore. Um, we have the design, you know, technology there. I think that. You know, smart players are going to be looking at looking at that. Um, I think there have to be some. You know, for us personally, I think there'll be some major major market changes. You know, have to happen to make that possible for us. But um, I think component manufacturers have a lot more to offer than than what we currently do, and you see that on on different levels. But just from a from getting the house up to optimization to to design. I think we're uniquely positioned in the industry to make that jump for sure. So let me switch focus just a little bit. I'm curious. Uh, you operate pretty close to the US Canadian border. Uh, we've been yeah. talking for the last two years and a lot of time before that about the software lumber dispute between the US and Canada. Yeah. Have you seen any direct impact in your market or any of the markets that you serve uh, because of that dispute? Yeah. Yeah, we have. Um, you know, in the early 2000s, it was a pr pretty good time in the market for everybody, um, but not for not for those sort of right along the Canadian border with with trust production north of them. I mean, that was um, I actually chose to be um, an economics major in college because of the softwood lumber dispute happening around that time. Um, my dad was involved with the SBCA uh, and lobbied in D.C. Um, on behalf of our company at that time, but we were at that point in time we were five miles from the Canadian border. And my dad woke up one morning and he was in his office looking out the road in front of us, and he saw eight trust trucks just roll right by our our company. And the way the Canadians were pricing then was they take our price and knock off you know thirty to forty percent, and that's what they would sell at. And it was. It was a, a really big deal, and if it wasn't for sort of a loyal group of customers, you know, at that time, Laos Trust probably wouldn't exist today. Uh, it's not that bad now. There's a lot of work going on in in British Columbia and you know in Washington State in general, and 
our company has taken major steps to sort of move ourselves from a company that operated, you know, in, in the county or two, you know, right near the Canadian border to looking at a much broader, broader market, you know, in our state and beyond. Um, but we are seeing more Canadian trusses come down um, into our home market um, across the border. Um, and there's a lot of wall panels and commercial trusses heading even farther south. Um, you know, that dispute is sort of, I feel like sort of out of my control, um, but it does have an impact. And luckily for us right now, there's enough going on where, you know, everyone is, is selling and happy and, and doing well. But if, if the market were to turn and the, the tariffs continue to be where they're at and on softwood lumber coming down, but not on components, um, that could have a significant impact on, on those, you know, along the Canadian border. And we've been in touch with our um, local state representative and, or it's not, it's not state, sorry, U.S. Congressperson and talk to them about the challenges that those, those tariffs um, face um, for us. But there's also a lot of logging and, you know, a lot of logging and mills and things like that in our area that are saying that these are good for them. And I think when, you know, our legislators look at, you know, the net impact um, on that industry versus net impact on our industry, you know, it, it's hard for them to come down on one side or the other. Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of how I'm viewing the issue right now. And we're just trying to position ourselves in the market to not be as exposed to that and be as competitive as we can be. So if I was to summarize that, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's in the back of your mind at all times. It's definitely a reality. <laughs> uh, it's just not a, a huge pain point at the moment. But at the moment. Out, Close down, that could change quickly. Absolutely, and even if we were doing well here, and the Canadian housing markets would slow down specifically, or the Lower British Columbia housing market were to slow down significantly, you know, if there was a lot of excess capacity up there, those manufacturers are going to do what any good business person would do, and they're going to find a way to fill that capacity. And and given the advantage that they've been handed. Um, especially considering where the Canadian dollar is and where it could be, um, that, that has a significant impact on, on our ability to compete, for sure. BJ, one last question for you. Um, are there any books or authors or uh, speakers that you've heard that you'd recommend to other component manufacturers to help them you know, be focused on you know, how can I innovate or how can I implement lean concepts or anything like that? Um, you know, I, I've never been a huge uh, business book person. I, it's kind of funny because I was a business major and, and I, um, I read some, you know, some biographical um, books in history. Um, I know that it's an older book, but um, uh, Freakonomics and in sort of, you know, different ways to think about concepts and things like that. Um, are very, it's very interesting to me. That's by Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner. And there's a whole series and they have a podcast as well. And it's just on a variety of different topics. But I find, you know, sort of looking outside of our industry um, and outside of uh, business in general, you know, there's a lot of applicable lessons to be learned there. Um, there's a podcast that NPR actually puts on called How I Built This. And they basically just interview uh, people from different companies, um, entrepreneurs that have started and built, you know, large recognizable businesses. And some of them are great and some of them aren't so great, but that's, 
that's something I, I enjoy to listen to on my on my many long drives around the state. Um, but that's uh, and I listen to a lot of um, political podcasts and, and other stuff for fun, and I, I read for fun. Um, but just I don't know, I don't know why I have a hard time with business books, but I just I've never been able to. Uh, I, I need like a like a Cliff Notes version. I just don't have the patience to get to get through the whole thing, <laughs> generally speaking. <laughs> Well, you have all this, um, you know, post-traumatic stress uh, associated with having to cram through those types of books when you were in school. So <laughs> yeah, it, it could, it could, it could be. And and I've been just really blessed to have um, to have great business mentors and, and people around and to see and to to see that stuff on on a firsthand basis. And you know, one of the cool things about the lean things we've done in our industry here is there's a lot of aerospace, so it's been really cool to partner with with much larger, um, more complicated organizations and see how they do things. And, and that's really, really where I learn. And that's why I find, you know, BCMC and the SBCA and all the different connections and plant tours so valuable is because you can go and see and learn, you know, from, from the greats in our industry and any trust plant or manufacturing operation that you, you can walk into. I feel like, that's that's invaluable. So we really try to put ourselves in a position to be able to, you know, have a lot of people come to our plant and, and go out there and, and see see a lot of people and spend time, um, you know, networking and touring and you know looking at how people address different challenges in their in their markets. I find that hugely beneficial. Excellent. Well, BJ, thank you for taking time today to join us in our podcast. Thank you, Sean. Um, I really enjoyed the series and I hope that it can continue for a long time. So thanks for having me on. Excellent. Well, I'd also like to thank our listeners for spending this time with us. Hopefully you've gained some insight from BJ on how to capitalize on today's market opportunities and prepare for future innovations. Thank you for listening to SBCA's podcast, Component Connection. We are committed to bringing you a variety of information via this podcast. Please email your feedback or suggestions for future topics to podcast at sbcindustry.com. 